0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in April, 2008.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio in the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing.
1: Today's guest is one of the best-known faces and voices working in theater, in film, on television, James Earl Jones. Let me just review a few credits currently playing the role of Big Daddy in the revival of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Other credits include two Tony Awards for The Great White Hope and one for Fences, a Tony nomination for On Golden Pond, Drama Desk Awards for Othello, LeBlanc, Hamlet, The Cherry Orchard, and also for Fences. Other shows, other credits include playing Paul Robeson in the show titled Paul Robeson, The Iceman Cometh of Mice and Men, James Earl Jones has also won four Emmy Awards, two obies a golden globe and numerous other awards we say welcome james earl jones i say fuck <laughs> i say goddamn i say
2: damn i say everything in the barnyard except shit i say mendacity i say lies and liars and that's why i took the role of big daddy in cat on the Hint roof <laughs> I, just, I, I, I wanted to be able to say those words with great freedom
1: and without getting arrested and the the script by Tennessee Williams is peppered with words like that, is it not? Oh, especially, yeah. especially for Big Daddy. Oh, yeah. It's a very interesting role, to say the least. The uh, Cat on the Hot Tin Roof has now been on Broadway five times, including the, your revival of it, which is the first time an African-American cast has done the show. That's irrelevant. What's, what's relevant
2: is uh, the first time anybody noticed me is saying, fuck. <laughs> it's been done before. They just don't notice until I say it. Is that because people don't expect you to I say it? I have that? no idea. It's a great mystery, and I accept it as a mystery. I guess they expect me and maybe other African-Americans to behave, to be uh, more politically correct. And as I say, um, uh, I know a dear friend of mine, played it the last time on on Broadway, Ned Beattie. And uh, he allegedly, I don't remember it myself, like nobody else did, said all the bad words I say. But nobody noticed
1: it. Oh, nobody took issue with it. Let's put it that way. So now, do people notice? What kind of reaction do you get from the audience in the theater?
2: Oh, they laugh.
1: We had a a minister uh, that that someone
2: in the cast knew uh, who was the chaplain of of a prestigious school who came. And I asked her, I said, uh, were you offended when I said, All the bad words, especially the ones in using the name of the Lord in vain. She said, I probably laughed. I probably, probably laughed harder than anybody around me.
0: There are apparently about six different versions of the script for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof that Tennessee Williams worked on at different times. Did you have the choice of which version, or was that already decided at the point at which they approached you to do the role?
2: When I met with Debbie Allen, my my director, the first thing I said, actually the only thing I said to her, I I didn't know I was cast yet. I knew that her sister would probably play uh, Big Mama, and I was praying that would be the case. Felicia Rashad. Yeah, I'd heard of, heard about their going after Terrence Terrence Howard, and. Uh, I didn't know Anika Nani Rose at the time. Uh, but uh, my first, and I didn't know I'd, I'd be doing the role. I said, "I, I, I it's a role I've always been interested in. There was the only one thing I need to know is, which script do you plan to use? She told me which it was, and it's the word that had the word fuck in it. I said, I, I, I'm very uh, pleased about that because why beat around the bush?
1: The the current version was originally on Broadway in 1955. What substantive changes, if any, have been made to the script for this? That's that's a great uh, question for uh, a
2: dramaturg uh-huh. or uh, liter, li, uh, literary major in school, whatever. You couldn't in those days. You couldn't say the word cancer. It was hinted at in the in, in the, the the version that uh, Boba Belgedes did. Uh, which I saw, by the way. I, I just arrived in New York from, from the Army, uh, full of all kinds of profanity, you know. I missed those words then, uh, but it was a great production, a great play. Burlaz Ber- Burles was great. Let, 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 let me finish. About words, you couldn't say the word cancer. You couldn't say the word that implied fornication or copulation or making love or sex. There are a lot of things you couldn't do, uh, uh, say on the stage in those days. I mean, they they would they would close the show down if you did in those days.
1: Well, one word which I believe was said in 1955, which is in the current version, is, is the N word. Yeah. yeah, nigger, and I still say it because
2: I'm singing about myself. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not offending anybody, but I'm not saying of those niggers or the. You know, I, I'm saying wh- I work like a nigger in the field. Now someday I'm going to take the word like out. I work, comma, a nigger in the field when I get the courage to take the word like out. Because I'm not like a nigger. I'm not like a Negro. I'm not like a colored person. I am one,
1: okay? We just don't call it the bad word. And that's what gives it a difference, though, between when Burl Ives did it. He was a white man, and now the, the line takes on a different meaning, does it not? Not much,
2: because Burl Ives played a big daddy. Burl Ives, you know, was the uh, ballad singer he brought great lyricism and stature to that role and i knew as as a as a southern mississippi boy uh, who had himself picked cotton as a kid i knew that if you got a job on big daddy's plantation you'd be a lucky son of a bitch you know because he he'd something decent about the person you know and um i and i i remembered that and I, I and i said i to look through the script for all the things where big daddy is human and a humanist and probably an atheist as well. What appealed to you specifically about Big Daddy?
0: Because we've read that you first even read scenes from this play when it was very new when you were studying back in the 50s. What drew you to this
2: character? The American Theater Wing, which I attended when I came out of the Army to New York to study acting. The teachers, like Will Lee, Lee Strasberg was a teacher in, in I think directing but Will Lee who was famous for Sesame Street uh, Mary Hanson um, uh, they our acting teachers said look you you, you colored fellas don't wait for the, the African American we didn't use that word in those days we colored people or Negroes um, and they're all fine with me it's, it's, it's such a pain in the ass they have to change all the time you know Cause then you don't know who you who you're supposed to be called and what you. Uh, they said, "Don't wait for that role to be written. Take all roles, including women. You men, try the role. Play women. Play roles where you cross the chasm of some cultural or ethnic divide. Cause you got to understand about what the human human being is. What makes people tick.
0: Yeah, now." The opportunity for you to actually appear on Broadway in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof is because of the stature you've achieved. In those days, did you think you would ever be able to play those roles on stage,
2: or were they only roles you could Man, play in class? I never hanker. I, I never daydream. I never say, I wonder if I'll ever get to. No, I, I never do that. I, I just deal with what's real. I deal with the, re- the reality. So the answer is no, I didn't. I didn't wonder about it. I, I, I'm i going to get ready for it, but if I ever have a chance to. But I, I didn't say. Well, I, want, I wonder when the when the clock will slip so that culturally we wise up, or uh, you know, or ethnically we wise up. We haven't. You know, this, this, this country is still deep, deep, deep darkness about race because you know that's not a surprise, is it? Race is not real. It is. It is bullshit. If I can use Daddy's one of his favorite phrase, "crap is crap," because race has never been proven scientifically as not only is relevant, but as as um, as any way to measure the human being. Uh, it has. You'll find people who will argue uh, to the death that. But my big daddy sounds different from a white big daddy. Crap! I'm from Mississippi. I'm just as much of a redneck as Burl Ives was, or anybody else who's, or Ned Beattie, anybody else who's played Big Daddy. Uh, red redneck is not a color, even though the word red is in it, which implies that you're out in the sun and your skin can't handle all that sunlight. But uh, you know that that that's why in in the in the present uh, political arena. There's such confusion. There's more confusion about it than there is mean-spiritedness about race. There are people who surprise me that they still use it. They're like a little drop of uh, contamination they want to drop into the soup, you know. And they they surprise me, especially a Democrat who will surprise me by doing that and disappoints me and breaks my heart because these were people that I loved, you know. Uh, Somebody said uh, African-American people have been good to America when America has often been not good to them. Some young thinker said that recently. Uh, but no, b- back back to the issue about casting, right? A- ask the question again.
0: Well, I think you you've answered that you said that you were not looking for the role it was just a role you were always preparing for and hoping to play it was a good role for me to work on yeah yeah
2: yeah even when i even when i was young it was uh big daddy has all the elements of humor and drama in him and and, and uh all the curious sides of the human being he is an evil man he is um He's a loving man, but he—he he, but his his negatives are probably more interesting than his positives because he doesn't love many people. He loves his son, but even his son not, is not totally aware of it or t- totally trusting in it. He hates one son, hates him, and even he can't explain why he hates him. Uh, my big mama, Miss Rashad, suggested that, well, probably big uh, probably uh the oldest son son number one Gooper, is uh was a love child, and indeed i i i watched one film on this play that used that as a rationale that Gooper was the reason they got married well now that's interesting isn't it that that's some fertile ground in there indeed <laughs> yeah. You know, it's your fault that I got married. I had to marry you and so on. I want to ask you
0: about number two son, Brick, and specifically the actor who plays him. You have stage experience of 50-odd years now. You're acting opposite Terrence Howard, who we know from film work, but who has not, in any of the bios we've seen, done stage work before. Was there... Were you? Did you mentor him in the process of bringing him onto the stage? How did you
2: work in what surely might have been differing styles coming into this? Not at all, and and I I'm, I guess I made a point of trying not to. I don't like Godfathers or mentors or role models. I like I dislike those people, but, and I certainly don't want to be one of them. Uh, I think Terrence might have suggested that those of us who had been on the stage before he says I'm, "I'm, I think he suggested i'm i'm counting on you to help me through this. I ignored every syllable of that phrase because i I knew i couldn't i couldn't live up to it if he 's counting on me, well, go down now, you know just just fa- say you failed now. But what I did say to him uh, one day he got really frustrated i don 't know if he's told anybody to this or not, and he uh, something came, came out of his mouth. He said, This is not my world." implying I'm from the film you guys had the stage stuff and you got to be loud all the time and that bothered him because when a, a film actor has to be loud they tend to be not not sure of, uh, of if they're in character or if they're real and, and Terrence has a wonderful uh, checking system he just pulls back to the utmost simplicity and that solves it he can hear himself he can hear himself Sound real, he can, and and he can proceed, you know. But at least he he's got a method of dealing with it, and um, probably most many don't have a method of dealing with it. I just knew that I said to him, "You're searching for uh, the truest brick you can find." I said, "I'm searching for the truest Big Daddy I can find." So, and I want I want to search with you. That that's all I can offer you. And we went back to work smiling the next day, and, you know, uh, I, I'm happy we did, because it's, it's that way every night.
1: Of course, a play, you're you're live for a live audience. You have to be heard in the last row of the theater or as a film. it's a very Oh, different... we're mic'd,
2: man. Yeah. Oh, we
1: have great mics on. Yeah. But you still have to project. I mean, but, yeah, but, you, in but film. You,
2: you do, but you don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. I've been corrected when I said something close, to, when I was close to his... Uh, his face, I said something a bit too softly, and the director said, got you know as intimate as that is, you got to say it louder, and oh, okay, fine, no problem, but I have no problem being loud and, and being a farm kid, none of us ever did. We call the cows, we call the hogs, and, and forget the chickens
1: well let's let 's talk about being a farm kid no it, no it, i'm not i 'm not through <laughs> talking about
2: i 'm not talking about Terence yet, oh, okay, I love him <laughs> Just start with i I love him. And luckily, I do because that's all I got. He and I on that sta- on that stage in the second act, and um, uh, he's all I got. I mean, he's all Big Daddy has too, and if Big Daddy can't help him. I don't. I won't say salvage him. That sounds like he's a some kind of you know machine. But if Big Daddy, Daddy doesn't help Brick survive, Big Daddy's lost too. If Big Daddy needs to pass that. Great invention he created out of this so-called plantation, this money making machine, this people making machine in his creation, and he needed to pass it on to his kind he says you know so um big big daddy all all he's got is brick, he rejects big mama, he rejects everybody's his number one son. Uh, he rejects the church. He rejects. He rejects clubs. He, he Rotary and so on. He he rejects everything. He says, "You, I do like,
1: for some reason, and I
2: don't know why." <laughs>
1: yeah. Can we now talk about James Earl Jones, the farm kid? You were born in Mississippi, and at one point, you intended to go into medicine to study medicine, become a doctor, but then you got bit. In by my everybody. in my family. Um,
2: and I was raised by my grandparents, I was raised with un- aunts and uncles who weren't that much older than I was. I, my uncle Randy is five years old, and I, Aunt Helen is uh, is uh, six years older, and I, and I call them by their first names. I call the grandparents, Mom and Papa. My ma- my own mother was called Ruth, that's her name. And when I met my father, I called him Earl. You know. met your father? It was some years later. Well, yeah, I wasn't allowed to meet him until I was 25 to so make my own decisions, you know. Uh-huh. And that, that's a long story. And he just passed away last year, so I, I I, I don't know if I'm ready to address any of that yet, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, I can, but, you know, it's... Uh, uh, but the rule in that family was you don't go off to college just to get a liberal education. You go off to college and become a doctor, a lawyer, An engineer, maybe a teacher. In high school, I thought I liked science. I thought I did, so I entered the pre-med program at University of Michigan. I didn't like science. Not
1: that much. When you were in school, you were writing poetry, and there was, as I understand it, a long period where you were a self-imposed mute. You were just not literally willing to talk to anybody. There was a period from the time we arrived in
2: Michigan from Mississippi. And I won't try to connect up the the psychic and the social uh, reasons for that. It's too easy to misinterpret. Uh, When I landed on cold soil, from warm soil, I went into shock of all kinds. And uh, the result of the shock was stuttering. I became a stutterer. And that got so bad, by the time I entered my first grade of school, which was in Michigan, um, I decided I wouldn't even try. It was too embarrassing, too painful. I, I couldn't even cut Sunday school. And my grandfather built a church across the road road from our farm. We went there, Sunday school. Kids were cracking up behind me. I knew why they were laughing, because it's funny. I I know you're not supposed to make jokes about stutterers or make fun of them, but it's funny and also makes you nervous because you don't know when they're ever going to get it out, you know? the main job was to go get get an education in one, one of the big three and uh that didn't work for me so I decided to go into the army which was part of my ROTC program reserve officer training program which I loved and I loved the army I wouldn't wanna love this, I wouldn't wanna try to love this army cause it's, it's it's a it's really pretty messed up the way it's been managed this army and I I just know that uh a lot of high officers now who were guys of, of my generation or younger than I was who don't know what the fuck they're doing, you know? And they're over there running wars. Okay, let's not get into that, huh? Because I still love the Army. I just I just, I, I, I wish it was better managed and better treated.
0: Coming out of the Army, you came to New York. You've already mentioned the Theater Wing School. It seems that after... The training certainly in a few years, there was a period in the early sixties where I think I read you did eighteen shows in thirty months. What kinds of opera it seems that opportunity came your way at every turn, even though I also read that you didn't get paid very much for all of it but but what was what was the scene that you you became part of at that time
2: you know the uh want to hear the big scene. Uh, when I, what I, uh, my dad would call proletarian theater when I came out of the army no longer did you have to be a Barrymore to be a qualified respected actor Marlon Brando had been on our stage Marlon Brando is every man and that meant that every man of any color of every color could b- benefit from that the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King all that w- c- was a there was a confluence of energy in this country, not only in this country, but in Europe, in England with the angry young men period, and in France with the, uh, with, with the avant-garde period. Uh, my, my first play uh, off-Broadway was a, a play by Jean Genet, a Frenchman that had, that had played both in, in Paris and, and in London. But it, it, was, it, was, it was... You didn't have to be a Barrymore, you could be a Brando. And uh, that opened up the theater for everybody, finally, you know. And that—that—that's the. And I didn't know it when I came came in, into New York. I, I didn't know that this was happening. This revolution was happening, but it was, along with, with a, a broader social, uh, I, let's call it evolution, because it belonged. It was time, you
1: know. Had you been acting before coming to New York? Doing work in college or elsewhere? College, summer's talk, yeah. So how did you get the first role in New York? You were brand new in town. How did you get get the first job? Out of a
2: paper called Show Business. I read uh, the casting, uh, a play about uh, American G.I.s in, in uh, occupation Japan. Uh, there was a role of a sergeant named Blunt. I uh, auditioned for it and got to understudy Ivan Dixon, who had been uh, very prominent in the TV series. Uh, style, what was it called? He ended oh,
0: up on Hogan's Heroes. Hogan's Heroes,
2: Heroes. Hogan's Heroes. yeah. yeah. I, I was his understudy, and I, and I got to go on one night uh, in this play about black GIs and occupation in Japan. And the night I went on, Toby Cole, who was then Lucy Crowe's associate, Uh, and later the author of Actors on Acting and Directors on Directing. She was in the audience, and she said, come in to meet Lucy. And I went in and met Lucy Crow, this this grand dame of a person, uh, pretty hot lady, you know, and very uh, um, elitist, aware of great theater, aware of great writing. She, she, She represented mainly... Uh, writers, I mean, uh, Lillian Gish and Kim Stanley and myself were uh, some of her clients as actors, but she rips in writers and directors. You know.
1: I guess the first notable uh, show that you and people nowadays would refer to would be in 1958, Sunrise at Campobello. And My first Broadway. First Broadway, credit. Yeah. right, right. Yeah. How, how did the, how did you happen into that show? Was that another ad in a in newspaper, or did you go for auditions? How, how did you get that?
2: The director Vincent Donahue, was one of Lucy's clients, so boy, I got in on some nepotism or something, you know, <laughs> some, some inside track. Uh-huh. I got to say, um, I got to say, because he was directing the play by Doris Sherry about uh, Frank Delano Roosevelt and his family and the years that followed Campobello, uh, his, his when he uh, was crippled by polio. And from there to the uh, the important Democratic Convention where he rose to his feet. And the tradition was whenever FDR rose to his feet, there was always a black man standing by beside him, usually. And that black man, he had two names. One was called Edward when he was a young guy. And later on, there was somebody else. Well, I played Edward, the houseboy, And I had... Uh, a couple of lines. One of them was, Mrs. Roosevelt, supper is served. And I said it with great pride. And one night, being a stutterer, I walked out on stage and said, didn't come out. Mary Fickett, who was playing Eleanor Roosevelt, just stood there. She knew I was a stutterer. And she let me get through it. The audience knew what was going on. There's, there's boys up there stuttering, and I got through it, and it never happened again. It hasn't happened since. But it, it could, you know, if if I have enough upset in my private life, probably it, it could happen again.
1: So what what were you thinking when this was going on? Oh my God! Here I am out on the stage in front of all these people. I got a
2: line to say, yeah, and I got to say it. And I, <laughs> And I kept trying, and maybe the drama of trying to say it was as interesting as what I had to say. Mrs. Roosevelt' supper is served. I don't know, but the the, the whole drama of communication, is, 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 as you guys know, is, is, a, is a fascinating one. That's why
1: you got these radios, right? Well, is there a difference for a person with a stuttering talking as yourself as opposed to a character? uh no, you take, be, should should take
2: shouldn't be but um uh i'm I'm using my Mississippi accent, the one I use when I go home to take county uh rarely now but uh and I'm using it uh, as big daddy. I don't talk about that much you know, yeah, but it 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 helps to, it helps us set the character off away from the way I talk now, yeah.
0: Certainly, Sunrise at Campobello was your Broadway debut, but it seems like, in terms of really putting you on the map, along with some other extraordinary performers, the Jean Genet play, The Blacks, which you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, was was quite a sensation. Mm-hmm. Can can you tell us a little about that? Because even just reading the cast list, people like Cecily Tyson and Maya Angelou and and Rosalie Brown, Rosalie
2: um, Raymond Saint Jacques, Ed Cambridge. Uh, Lou Gossett, um, and and there were more. Uh, uh, each fraction of a generation that followed us, they 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 cycle in and out of it too. I I'd, I'd lose ten pounds because of all the sweating and carrying on, and I had to step out for a couple few months, and then somebody else would take my place, and I'd come back into it. Uh, that was part part of why it was spectacular, you know, because there was so much energy flowing in and out of it. Uh, also. That play would not work today the way it did then because um, of the civil rights movement. Uh, It was a play uh, about what if you were to take the social system in terms of black and white and set it on its head, what would happen? You'd have the same nonsense with black top, you know. um, And that's what Janae was exploring speaking of the, the mythology of color and that, that's the word i i really me- meant to explore before it is it is a, a delusion it is um color is a, a, a delusion uh more than it is an illusion it, 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 we, there's a difference i am darker than you are that that's not that's not a delusion but what it represents becomes a delusion
1: There's a quote that I just pulled up uh, that he, he said this in his words. This play, written, I repeat, by a white man, is intended for a white audience. But if, which is unlikely, it is ever performed before a black audience, then a white person, male or female, should be invited every evening. The organizer of the show should welcome him formally, dress him in ceremonial costume, and lead him to his seat, preferably in the first row of the orchestra. The actors will play for him, a spotlight should be focused upon this symbolic white throughout the performance. But what if no white person accepted? Then let white masks be distributed to the black spectators as they enter the theater. And if all of blacks refuse the masks, then let a dummy be used. Jean Genet, Mm -hmm. he also said uh,
2: between the black people are on top, the first question is, first of all, what is their color? I don't know what that means. I didn't know what I meant, what I was saying when I went to audition for it. I took a shot of vodka and went into audition because I didn't know what the hell it was t- I was saying. It, it, was, it, it was really avant-garde writing. Just that, that statement you just read is pure avant-garde. You could say bullshit, but no, he, he had something in mind about illusions and, and delusion and, um, and mirrors and flipping, you know, flipping mirrors uh he quite a profound writer whether he was writing about race or sex or whatever you know but but we 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 took that play for for what it's worth in terms of race and culture and and social change and we 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 did it in a in a a red hot period in that same period you began to do a
0: series of shows for the then fledgling New York Shakespeare Festival and Joe Papp and you got to play so many roles. I'm wondering about the opportunities that you had at that time doing that work at what we now think of as a revered institution, but was really a brand new idea
2: to do Shakespeare for everyone. Shakespeare for everyone, yeah. And and that was Joe Papp's mission. He wanted to shake us loose from needing needing to hear Shakespeare done only with Oxonian tones. He wanted the guy to come out of Brooklyn and maybe adjust a bit, you know, if he's playing a Roman, have him play a lower class Roman, bring his Brooklyn, which is associated with lack of education, right? many american sounds are associated with lack of education because we we so we so do not revere education in this country so but it is it, not the poor people that are, that are the problem it's other people who are afraid of education okay let me not get into that uh joe wanted to to to, to make a place for a guy with a spanish accent in there's Raul julia who could have denied a great talent like that you know uh, and there was uh, Tom—I forget some of the guys that came, they were born in Brooklyn, uh, but who came in with them, and they brought the Brooklyn accents with them. And uh, there was me. I was mistaken by John Simon. May his name be Mud. The critic. Is that what he is? Was? No, he's he's stuck. He's stuck with his own— Knife. You know, he, he was John the Knife, you know, and he, and I think once 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 his editor found out how exciting that was, oh boy, he he couldn't he couldn't do anything else but just knife people, you know. Well, he's also a very interesting critic, and I and I I must say I I try to revere critics because they have a very important job to do. But John mistook me for um, a Caribbean, and we did have Caribbeans in the in in the play but I wasn't one of them, and he somehow, because I was black and another guy next to me was black, he just, you know. So I knew he was just off. His eyesight wasn't good, and his hearing wasn't very good. So I just never took him seriously. And you know what somebody told me? He he not only took me for West Indian, but he also expected me, he also panned me. So I was just no good as as that plebeian, you know. And I think he expected people to come back at him. And you know what happened when they did? When they, they like, his his negative review was like a gauntlet he threw down. No, take that. If you came back, you became very good friends. I know a couple of actors who became very good friends with him by coming back at him. So there's something, some dynamic going on there that I, did, I had no interest in getting involved with. And you don't want me to slander anybody either, do you?
0: Hardly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Among the classical roles, you had begun what I understand to be one of your, you played Othello seven times over the course of your career. What did that role mean to you when you first began to play it in the 60s? And what did it mean when you played your last Othello in the That's early
2: 80s? too intellectual a question for me to ask because I, 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 I don't have that hat with me. I don't carry it with me. Uh, uh, could, could I address another another character in Shakespeare? Sure. M- my very first role, Michael Williams, in uh, Henry V. Jo- uh, I mentioned John Simon and his mistaking what was going on on stage. Well, Joe Pap was mistaken too. They thought that Joe, the critics thought that Joe Pap cast me as Michael Williams, the soldier who takes the king on about dead soldiers. As Joe Papp's uh, anti-Vietnam War statement, and and wh- who better than having a black soldier say it? That wasn't what Joe was doing. He, he, Joe Papp just gave me a job, and it happened to be the role I asked for, <laughs> Michael Williams. <laughs> After I'd been um, given the role of Abhorson, the executioner, in Measure for Measure, I also got to play Michael Williams. But it it, it was it was it was kind of uh, everybody wanted to, uh, do an interpretation of everything as social as political, you know, and uh, yeah, Joe was very political, especially when it came to going up against Robert Moses. you know that drama huh yeah uh, but but n- n- not not in his casting, yeah, the only thing he said to me about Othello this is interesting Gladys Vaughan directed othello, and the, the, I think i won 't compare them but the one I certainly felt most fulfilled in, out in the park. Um, it was Julianne Marie was the Desdemona. Mitchell Ryan was the Iago. Mitchell Ryan and I were as close of brothers as you can get. We're both from the South. He happens to be white, I happen to be black. With the same size, same zodiac sign, same. And that I, I found out was, was, was a key element of that relationship, those two men. They had to be both, both capable soldiers, all right. Uh, What Joe was bothered by that is uh, making Othello too rational, too much like Obama, you might say, even though we didn't know Obama wasn't born yet. But Joe wanted more fire. He, He wanted more Malcolm X. And that ain't what Shakespeare wrote, you know. Shakespeare, thought, was a very rational man, a very human. He was a great humanist. He was, he was, he knew he was the brightest sun in the in 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 the orbit. You know, he was the brightest sun. He was a sun god. He knew that about himself. He knew that about his heritage, and his main job was not to shine too much light on other people because they were also human. You know. And that's the way Gladys wanted me to play it. Without arrogance. Without, without a whole lot of ego. But she 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 was the one that knew how to fashion the Iago so that made sense. And I don't know of any other director who's ever done it. I think Robson had the advantage of a female director as well. Margaret Webster. And I think that makes a big difference. Uh, if you can't cast it right, you, you have a female director. Because they understand a lot about relationships and men don't
1: okay. That's interesting well you have played many different shakespearean roles have you ever had any formal training in acting in shakespearean roles i i, I don't know Would what you, that means either well did you take classes have you have you you know we, we talked about you going to college have i you, went to the american you, theater wing man <laughs> okay. But uh, with with specific emphasis on playing shakespearean roles or just acting various Act, just roles, learning just learning stuff uh uh-huh. you know um no, not not with specific. I
2: guess the closest I came to uh, Shakespearean roles was in, in Michigan, with the uh, English literature class. Uh, uh, the the teacher said I, I was having trouble with all my my grades because I was more focused on the Korean War. Saying, "Come here, young man." Being drafted. I was just before. Oh that? no, uh, no, I, I, I was sad. It was called ROTC, Reserve oh, Officer right. Training right. Program. Right. Yeah. And we were we were uh, allegedly a uh, rung above the draftee, you know, but not much because there were more soldiers getting killed, more officers getting killed over there than than you know anybody. Per ratio. Um no, um, uh, I was just having trouble uh, focusing on. The, the, my last year of college and also uh, the war hadn't hadn't even come to a truce yet. It turned out well for me, by the way. I didn't get killed, you know, and I didn't kill anybody. Uh, and I retained my love for the Army. Okay. Uh, he said, if you will read the characters, the Shakespeare characters, for the class, I'll make sure you get a passing grade. And I I didn't bite. <laughs> That's it. I also want to learn a little about the literature besides the acting, you know. Uh, but I, I, I was pretty good at it. Yeah. You know? You've mentioned politics several mm-hmm. times so mm-hmm.
0: far, so I have to ask: when you took on the role of Jack Johnson in *The Great White Hope* in 1967-68, really at the height of the civil rights movement, was that? A political act, and was it or was it perceived as a political act playing that
2: role at that time? I didn't give a shit what it was or not. I wasn't going to play politics with it. I had too much work to do to play that role than to get it. There were all kinds of shenanigans backstage about this and that and so on, and I didn't have time for it, nor did I have a whole lot of patience for it. My father had dedicated himself to uh, a lot of left-wing energy, and uh, it was folly. It's not that I want to be a right winger, but I didn't want to do that shit either, you know. Uh, so no, I I, I, st- I still don't. I I still don't. I still can't do the politic thing, you know. And uh, and I I'm not an activist. I don't want to be. I I wouldn't be good at it. I, st- I stutter for Christ's sake. And uh, I wouldn't be good as a spokesperson. I would. I wouldn't be good at any any of that, you know.
0: I read that you really went after that role of Jack Johnson, that that's something you really sought out. Was that true?
2: Not because of the height of some p- political, you know, no. uh, meaning. Uh, by the way, if you, if you, if you see, uh, the documentary, the unforgivable blackness. The PBS documentary the PBS on Jack on Johnson. Jack, yes. is beautiful. He is beautiful. He was a beautiful creature, beautiful human being, uh, a great man. Uh, but um, the issue with him was hubris, not race, but hubris. And that's kind of how, how, I, how I played it. What appealed about that role? Why was it so important that you okay. got to play it? Lucy Kroll, who, as I said, was an elitist in terms of l- literature, uh, said, Jimmy, and she hadn't met Howard Sackler yet, but uh, she said, Jimmy, this, this play is, isn't it kind of old fashioned? She she was uh, you know probably ahead of her time in many ways, uh, whether it was feminism or you know so, social progress or whatever, and she thought it was the, the the style. And I said, I don't care. I like the character, and I want to just I want to just dig into it and, and 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 just for the sake of the character, I want to do this play, and uh, I, I got my way. You know, and uh, that's that's why I did it. Uh, there weren't many rich characters being written, uh, you know, in, in those days. I, I won't say for black people, but for anybody. Uh, you know, once um, you start complaining about roles that... Uh, uh, you got to say, you know, <laughs> I, I think Jimmy Baldwin once said, well, if you think that male roles are a problem, consider two for the seesaw, you know. What's so great about the male and that? You know, we've got a long way to go before writers can realize a human being that's male or, or that's female. And he, he, he's just saying, you know, it's not just, it's not just black men that should complain. <laughs> All American men should complain. And, and what, But then who are you going to complain to? We're talking about writers, you know, and they'll, they'll write what they need to write, not what we need
1: uh, to, to succeed in our you know, rise to popularity or whatever. Well, the character you played, Jack Jackson, was a, about 100 years ago, was a champion prize fighter. Most people nowadays probably don't, are not really that familiar with the name. He was the Muhammad Ali, if you will, of his day. And uh, besides being a champion fighter for many years, he was basically undefeatable for quite a few years. And that's the title of the show, The Great White Hope, hoping that a white boxer would eventually defeat him. He was also uh, well known for being involved with white women. And you played opposite you Jane, you. Jane Alexander. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. You, you developed the show in Washington, D.C. at the Arena Stage and then transferred to New York to Broadway, as I recall. Are
2: you asked me to tell you the, the experience about playing with a white woman? Kiss my ass! Kiss
1: my black ass! Of of working with Jane Alexander, (laughs) fine. Oh, that was great! Yeah, Yeah. that's right. That was great. Who who happens to be white? (laughs) How sad. Well, she's
2: a woman, you know, and um, and a a profound woman. I mean, with, um, yeah, she brought to that. She brought to that, that role something that was worth taking to the film. I think she was the only one of us who was really worth taking to the film. The film, far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, was not as good as the movie, uh, as, as the play rather. The film was not didn't didn't cut the same mustard the play the play did. Marty Ritt was who ex- excelled in films like uh, *Norma Ray and *Sounder*. Probably was more used to uh, a, a, a narrow focused social I- social issue like labor and race and so on. He excelled at. Jack Johnson was like a out of a cannon, you know, and it was grape shot. There were too many issues. You couldn't, and, and, and the Hollywood scene at that time decided to take out of all things to reduce the poetic elements in it so that you reduce the, the black witch woman to uh, just a mean, angry black bitch. You reduced the conjure man into just an angry street protester. You reduced uh, all, all all the you, you reduced big uh, Captain Dan the who represented the white power structures, to just another mean cracker. Not the oaken creature that that George Matthews brought on the stage. He walked on stage and he was something to contend with man. I'm mean, just a, 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 a Jack knew he had his his match in that man not that system but that man and that's what that, that's what that's why stage dramas succeed sometimes where film can't
1: was it diluted to reach a mass audience that's a good word diluted uh i, I think they want to make box office <laughs> no they wanted
2: to make a romantic story oh, about a black guy and a white girl uh, all bullshit uh, again you know <laughs> Hmm. That's what I think that's what they wanted. They want to be the first, so we can also make miscegenation
1: attractive I guess there's a reason Not with me <laughs> I guess there's a reason why they call it tinseltown <laughs> listen uh Probably, by by the way, before I knock hollywood too uh, much i I
2: going to tell you something i am now now that we've opened with our play cata riff I'm watching all the movies. And I'm finally down to the one that Elizabeth Taylor and Paul Newman and Burl Ives did, and it is a wonder. It is the best of Hollywood. It's not Tennessee Williams. Ours is T- Tennessee Williams, but they did a version of that play as maybe less than half of the dialogue is Tennessee Williams, hmm. and it, and but but the the two lovers, man, they're wonderful and. And it's focused for them. It's focused for Elizabeth, Dame mm-hmm. Elizabeth Taylor, and for the great Paul Newman. Mm-hmm. And it's wonderful. So I can't, I can't always knock Hollywood. They, they get it right a lot, you know, especially these days. Over the course of your
0: career, as we try to touch on so much work so quickly, over a 20-year period, several times, you appeared in different plays by Athol Fugard. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what the lure of Fugard was for you,
2: from the Blood Knot to Master Harold and the Boys. Thank you, thank you. I won't say there's a lure. And once I tasted his work, I I, I couldn't get enough. Um, wh- what I what I discovered was Athol Fugard, and I met him in the days when he um, was ha- he had a hard time getting a passport from his his natives. Uh, South Africa to, to travel abroad. And uh, because he, there was a sensitivity between him and, and, the, and the apartheid government, Athol could not write anything that could be interpreted as uh, promoting the overthrow of that government, which they couldn't, did him, uh, they couldn't have did a bigger favor for him. Now he had to take all that drama that existed, especially in the black people, of South Africa and write it without polemic. Write it without a political point of view. Just show the horrible experience. And he did it dutifully. Uh, and that that's why I love playing it. I mean I um and, and August Wilson manages the same thing for a different reason, I guess. No polemic. He writes about black people in America. No polemics. You know, no campaigns against Whitey. Just, just campaign against pain, you know. Have you previously worked with August? Is this the first no, August Wilson? I didn't show? have the same uh-huh. uh, fortune with August as I had uh-huh. with Athol. Yeah, uh, it just didn't happen. It happened. Athol wrote several plays that I I, I could enjoy being in, and uh, I haven't found the same thing with August. Although they're great plays, but not not for me, you know. Just that one was was the was the one for me, and I, I'm I'm. I'm so grateful that I had a chance to play. And it's going to be revived, you know. And I'm so looking forward to seeing it. Why was that the one for you? Because of the character you were playing? Yeah. Uh Again. Again, that's all I can relate to. And at that time, of
0: course, he was a brand-new playwright. He had had one play before. I'm wondering, you know, now we speak of him. Of course, he's he's passed away, and we speak of the achievement of the cycle. But at that point, it was only his second play, and he was he was known for writing rather long. And, <laughs> then, <laughs> well. and I'm just wondering what, what your experience was as that role took shape.
2: Boy, we hated the cut anything we hated the he he hated the cut more than we hated the cut and uh yeah it, it, they, were, they were long uh at the same time uh I think I think August would have made a wonderful serial writer but but the series hadn't evolved to the stature that drama and stage and and film uh what do what they call them now mini mini series have have risen to now uh, but he, he shouldn't be asked to stop, you know. He just right on and on and on and on. And if he gets a great character like Troy, he should keep him alive and alive and alive until he dies, naturally. But he had, he had to kill off so many characters off stage that I knew he didn't want to, you know. He, he didn't, didn't know how else to end those great people, you know.
0: I also want to ask, we've come to fences, but several times over the course of your career, you worked – with Lloyd Richards, indeed, mm-hmm. your first one of your first paying jobs in theater was understudying Lloyd, who, of course, famously directed you in Fences and produced some of those Fugard plays at Yale Rep. What what was that relationship to Lloyd?
2: I'll compare myself to Courtney Vance, who played um, Corey, my son, in in uh, uh, the Fences show. Um, I think Courtney. Saw Lloyd Richards as a father, uh, in terms of theater, he, he was his theater father, because Lloyd was the um, the dean of uh, drama at Yale. Courtney got his uh, papers at Yale. He got he he learned, he fine tuned his acting at Yale, uh, and Lloyd did that for a lot of, a lot of people. So he was a he was a he was a, 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 cre- a creator creator figure. I won't say father, but creator. And he knew. I I know Lloyd as a as an American who knew more about the theater. Uh, I would compare him with Stanislavsky, not in terms of styles of acting, but what Stanislavsky knew about the theater that made it work in Russia. Lloyd knew about the theater that made it work in this country. Just knowledge, just basic knowledge. He knew a lot. He he knew styles. He knew starts writing and starts acting he knew, he knew he knew it all and he could share that with his t- with his classes with his students or, or with his cast
1: well you played in Fences in 1987 then a gap of about 17 maybe 18 years you were back on Broadway in 2005 for a wonderful revival of On Golden Pond opposite Leslie Uggams I had some fun man. <laughs> yeah. you were having fun absolutely you played Norman Thayer Jr. Norman Thayer Jr. <laughs>
2: yeah. and uh uh My director, the wonderful uh, Leonard Folio, said, he said, I know you revere Henry Fonda. Your wife adores him, and she's worked with him and so on. He said, but I don't want you to be as quiet as Henry was. I want you to be quite loud. I guess the the phrase is, do not go gentle into that good night, you know. Mm -hmm. Rail against dying, but rail loud yell be rough on people be cruel to people because that's that's the only way you have of staying alive you know and he gave me that he he taught me about being you know enjoying being loud again
1: well he gave you great freedom of range it sounds like you were able as you have in the current show cat on a roof your your character has tremendous range yeah. Yeah. yeah tremendous range both vocally but emotionally as well <laughs> Yeah, Leonard gave me that uh-huh. in, in in that production. Have you not had that freedom with other
2: directors before that? Oh man, we're we're all looking for subtlety because we want to be in the movies too, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody hired you. I'm watching. Oh God, I, I I can't say it without slandering somebody. I don't suppose when our our dear friend uh, Al Pacino did Merchant of Venice for television, Al was the only American that I recognized in it. But he was also the only person who spoke with voice. All the other actors who excelled in the English language, the British actors in particular, they all did that fake uh, movie acting whisper. And nobody talks like that, especially outdoors. Mm -hmm. But it's the way that some directors have discovered that an inexperienced young actor can get away with a lot. If it just doesn't make it quite voiced. Well, it's called voice, and it's supposed to have vibration in it, not aspiration, you know. And I'm watching a wonderful actor now playing John Adams. The critics were, 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 were totally off base about his character. He's a one, He is a wonderful John Adams, but he whispers too fucking much.
1: At least you can turn up the volume on the
2: television. No, that doesn't solve it. It's called voice. Mm. Voice in contrast to aspiration. Mm. Yeah. John yeah. mentioned the
0: long gap between Fences and on Golden Pond. We did not see you, certainly, on Broadway in that period. They thought I was dead. But why didn't we see you? They thought I was... D- what? Why, why were we not seeing you on
1: stage? I don't know. Hmm.
2: I didn't, didn't worry about it either. I was doing Verizon and very happy doing it. You know, hmm. I didn't. I didn't notice the, you know, how long it it took. Uh, there were some things I wanted to do, that, but they hadn't. They hadn't decided to mount, Cat um, on the hotel and roof at the time. But no, I. The what's more fun is, is count the number of people, who because they didn't hear any more reports, James Earl Jones. Leaves the production, abandons the production of a successful production of On Golden Pond because he is ill with pneumonia. It sounds like George Bush saying, and Saddam Hussein has tried to get yellow cake, uh, yellow cake. Uh, nuclear energy from Africa. Remember that? George Bush actually gave it that intonation to make it sound more ominous. Well, I I still hear that ominousness. James Earl Jones is ill. (laughs) So therefore, the the natural assumption, if you don't hear about him, he's dead. But I've been declared dead before many, many many times, you know, and and, uh, it's always premature. Well, f- I'm sorry. I, I, I when I can't when I can't answer something directly, I, I tend to bullshit. You know, <laughs> and, and I and uh, you asked me why it took so long. I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't hanker. I don't campaign for things anymore. I admire actors who campaign, for instance, for having a well-designed career. Tom Cruise is. You you can't have a a better designed career. Um, and I think um Denzel Washington. Those are great well designed careers. I never did that. I wouldn't know how. maybe I wouldn't want to, I don't know. I like the accidents better. So the accident of um Cat on the Hot Tin Roof didn't come along. They they tried to mount it with, with Lloyd, you know, the same same producer. As Stephen tried tried to get it mounted with them. Um, I think Lloyd and um a couple of young people
1: for Maggie and Brick, you know. Well, now that we are seeing you back on Broadway in 2008, can you're we? about the to to, now, now. Huh? Can we hope to see you in the future? <laughs> yes, we're about to about to wrap up. Can we hope to see you in the future back on Broadway? You're, you're very very astute at picking up that, that, that segue. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm As learned, we wrap up, le- learn how to sig- read your signals between each other. Yeah, it's
2: fascinating. Uh, Big Mama has a line like that. She says, "What." Why, is there, why are these signals going on between you all out there? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, 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 I say I, I don't hanker and I don't campaign, you know. Frankly, I'd like to do—actors uh, tend not to want to mention the things they want to do because somebody will come along and steal them, mm-hmm. you know. So I won't mention what I'd like to do next because somebody
1: might steal it, you know. Well, you have given us very direct answers to our questions today, and we do thank you for being with us on (laughs) Downstage Today. You're right. That is the time to wrap up. Thank you very (laughs) much, James Earl Jones. Thank you.
0: James, thank you so much. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.Americantheaterwing.org.
1: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you.
0: The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.